This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Leon Logan-Nathan. With me, uh, quite a rugged-up uh, Peter Gowers. Pete, what's going on down there? Mate, I'll be back soon. It's turning nasty down this way. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it we were talking to the other day? Um, oh, um... Former Attorney General and uh, Minister for Corrections, uh, John Elfrink. John Elfrink, yes, yes. Yeah, saying that you get these, you know, a couple of days of mid-20s and then you'll get a cold night and it's exactly the same down here, but I think we're getting more cold than we are warm, so it might be time to evacuate. Yeah, right. Well, it is April, mate, and it is Melbourne, so. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good, mate. Look, uh, I um, I got to say I'm pretty excited about uh, about our podcast uh, tonight because we've got a guest that we've been trying to get on here for about a year or so, um, and it, it sort of started with our uh, discussions with the NT Independent, and, mm. uh, and you know them getting barred from attending press conferences and and all that sort of stuff, and. And then we saw a bit of action coming from down south uh, and even from overseas where people had pointed to the Northern Territory as uh, being particularly peculiar for all the wrong reasons. Yes. Um, and and out of that, I think we were introduced to a, an institution called the Australian, um, AJF Australian. The Alliance for Journalist Freedom. Alliance for Journalist Freedom. Thank God we got that voiceover guy working for us. Exactly, exactly. With that voiceover, I should introduce you to one of the co-founders of that of that association, and certainly someone who is 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 quite famous as a journalist for a variety of reasons. Mr. Peter Grester, or should I say, Professor Peter Grester. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Leon. It's great to be here. And, and thanks for uh, correcting me on the AJF. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Got to be accurate about these things. Right. So, Peter, um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, and, and I do want to talk about the anti-independent as well and, and your views on all of that. Um, but before we get to that, we'd like to get to know you first. And you have a, a very interesting background just looking at the uh, Wikipedia entry <laughs> on, your, on you, which, <laughs> which my co-host always finds amusing. <laughs> um, you, were, you, you weren't born in Latvia, but your roots go back there. Yeah, well, my father is actually uh, a World War II refugee from Latvia. Uh, he was born there. Um, his, my grandfather, or my, yeah, my father's family were industrialists living on the coast in a place called Leopaya. And uh, when the Russians occupied the place, they fled. My grandfather was drafted into the German army. And uh, family law has it that uh, the last thing he told my grandmother before he disappeared off to the Western Front was uh, that whatever happens to me in this, in this whole business, you take this family and you get them as far away from the communists as you can. And my grandmother took them at his, took him at his word and, <laughs> and uh, applied for, for visas to Australia, to New Zealand and Canada. The Aussies came through. And unfortunately, my grandfather died in an allied POW camp, but uh, um, the rest of the family made it here safely. And, and that's how I came to find myself here in Australia. Wow. 
And, and so Latvia, uh, for the uninitiated, including myself, oh, yeah. uh, was, was formerly uh, a, a country before it was occupied by the, the Russians. Yeah, the, yeah there's, a, there's a whole weird history. In fact, it, it, for a long time, it, um, it's one of those countries that's been traded between empires in a lot of ways. It was part of um, the, the Greater German Empire for a while. The Germans occupied it. In fact, uh, my surname, Gresta, we understand, where we found a little village in Germany called Gresta. So we're, we're kind of assuming or guessing, there's no evidence for it, we're guessing <laughs> that a Baron von Gresta or something at one point settled in, in Latvia and, and uh, we, we wound up there. Um, and uh, as you said, the, the Russians occupied it, the Soviet became part of the Soviet Union. And it got its independence back when the Soviet Union broke up. And now it is, uh, you know, culturally, politically, um, and particularly now, of course, uh, on the back of the Ukraine war, um, it's, it's, it tends to be quite aggressively um, independent of Russia, uh, pro-European, mm. pro-Western. Right, right. Well, this is really interesting, Peter, because uh, I, I don't think we've ever had a guest from Latvia, have we, Pete? We have definitely not. And Latvia is one of those countries of mystery to me that I see from time to time. And you'll be surprised to know, Leon, but I did do some research prior to this. Yeah. And I was thinking, we must talk about Latvia because it's such a mysterious country. It's, yeah, it, it's a great little country. It tends to punch above its weight. Um, and it, it actually had a big part to play in, in my story, in fact, in, in Egypt as well. Oh, wow. Right, right. And, and, but you hold, you hold Latvian uh, citizenship as well as Australian citizenship. Well, I do, and maybe it's a little premature to bring this up now, but in fact, um, I got my citizenship when I was in prison. I didn't know I was a Latvian national until I read about it in oh. a newspaper article that someone smuggled into prison for wow. me. Um, the, the story about this was that uh, when, when Latvia got its independence, they were busy hoovering up as many nationals as they could to try <laughs> from the diaspora. And anybody who, who, could, who could demonstrate Latvian ancestry, uh, whose parents were, were, one or both parents were born in Latvia, could claim that Latvian citizenship. And so I went into the embassy and registered the fact that my father was a Latvian national, but I never completed the paperwork. That was something I'd always planned to do later. And for a long time, I, I was living in countries that didn't have a Latvian embassy, so I didn't really follow it through. And when I was in Egypt, uh, someone from the Latvian foreign ministry saw the story and thought, hang on a minute, Gresta, Gresta, maybe that, that sounds like one of ours. And they said, it might be a way to check the records. And sure enough, because I'd filled this form in, it had a number on it. And because it had a number, they said, right, it's one of ours. <laughs> and, wow. And there, was, uh, there was, you know how everybody complains that their passport photo looks like a prison mugshot? <laughs> well, mine really, really, really it was fun. for good reason, yeah. right? So, so uh, to tell tell us about Latvia in terms of its well, it, it its neighbours are besides Russia, of course, is uh, Estonia to the north, Lithuania to the south, and and also Belarus. Um, yeah, do, do they all speak similar languages, or is it well, the Estonians have a famously weird language that they sort of related to nothing, particularly nothing at all. <laughs> um, but uh, Latvia, um, Russia, um, Lithuania, they've all got fairly similar roots. Um, and most Latvians speak Russian as well by dint of, of the, the period that they were part of the Soviet Union. Of course, mm. Russian was, was the lingua franca. Um, but the Latvians have also, as I said, got a very strong sense of their own identity. As you said, they, they sit between Russia and the Baltic Sea. And so in that respect, it's strategically really important because 
In fact, the town that my, my father was born in, um, the town that my grandparents lived lived in, was a place called Liepaja, right on the coast. And it's one of the few Baltic Sea ports that the Russians had access, or the Soviets had access to, that didn't freeze over in winter. So it was strategically really important. It became the home of the Soviet nuclear fleet, nuclear submarine fleet. Um, and so it was one of the last places that um, the Russians let go when the, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed. Um, and even though Latvia has been a part of Russia, I think culturally, as I said, politically, it's always looked more to the West than it has to the East. It's, it's seen the Russians as, as more as occupiers and dominators rather than as a part of their, their own cultural origins. Um, and you know they, they tend to be very well organised. Latvians, there's a standing Latvian joke that if you if you get three Latvians together, you end up with six committees. They <laughs> <laughs> um, they they tend to they tend to organise well, and they tend to, um, as I said, to, to punch above their weight. They tend to be fairly significant players in the European Union. Um, they have been very heavily involved in NATO. Um, in fact, the lady who spotted my name and, and activated the, the Latvian government um, is now um, one of the second most senior officials in, within NATO. So, um, they, they, as I said, they, they play a fairly big role in, in a whole bunch of, of European affairs. They've obviously got some pull when it comes to Wikipedia as well, Peter, because uh, <laughs> I take it you've lived in Australia most of your life. Well, obviously, ba- with Australian citizenship most of your life. But uh, you're referred to as a Latvian Australian on Wikipedia. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud <laughs> of that, that history. And, and, you know, even though, as you say, Pete, the fact that I was born in Australia and, and really didn't have a great deal of connections to Latvia directly, apart from what was you know, absorbed through my, my father's cultural background, which was never really explicitly Latvian. I mean, there were a few Latvian things that we, we inherited, but... When I first went to Latvia, um, as you know, in, in, when I was um, in my forties, I didn't realise how much of, of the culture had, had seeped into my own cultural DNA. There was far more. I felt far more comfortable there than, than I ever really expected. I was I was quite surprised to see how much of it entered my, my own bloodstream. Mm, that's very interesting. And look, I just um, what, what's intriguing me about this is. You know, we, we, obviously, Ukraine is in the news right now um, for, for you know, I guess again all the wrong reasons. Um, and you know, we're told, or we understand at least, that uh, Putin is is moving into Ukraine because he's concerned about uh, the, the proximity to to Moscow and uh, and and Ukraine is not the only country that borders Russia. I'm just looking at the, the geography of, of Latvia, and Latvia is probably closer, or, or at least uh, the east, uh, the eastern part of Latvia is probably closer to Moscow than than the Ukraine is. Yeah, it is, and and the Latvians are particularly concerned for for much the same reasons that the Ukrainians um, have been have been occupied, and uh, and that's because the Latvians have a very significant Russian language, Russian speaking minority. Um, you know, again, just by dint of natural migration, um, the Russians or the Soviets also moved quite a few Russians into Latvia. And so there is a large minority there. Um, the Russians take the view. I remember when I was in Yugoslavia years ago, the Serbs used to say that Serbia is anywhere that a Serb is. 
and the Russians seem to <laughs> seem to see something similar with the Russians, um, and so they kind of there's a worry that that Moscow will come to regard um, the eastern parts of Latvia as as natural parts of its own its own territory because there is, as I said, a, a large Russian speaking minority and decide that it needs to in the interest of protecting those poor Russians, it needs to uh, move its move its tanks over the border. I think that probability is a lot less now given that the Russians have taken quite a bloody nose in Ukraine and they probably yeah. don't have that many tanks left <laughs> to, push, <laughs> to to move into into the Baltic states. But that's clearly something that's really animated a lot of the Latvians and it's one of the reasons why the Latvians have been very aggressive in, in encouraging NATO to take a forceful stance against um, against Russia in, in, in Ukraine and, and it's also why the Latvians have been busy moving in a lot of other uh, NATO troops into its onto its territory. Um, to make sure that those defences are, are, are solid. Right. And you mentioned NATO a few times. So, um, again, I'm going to show my uh, ignorance here, but Latvia is a member of NATO? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the arguments, and I'm, I'm not sure I buy this particular argument, one of the arguments um, for the, or that people have made about why Russia chose to, uh, to move into Ukraine now was because it felt threatened by NATO's expansion into those Baltic states. It felt that NATO was was moving into what it, Russia considers to be its own sphere of influence, the near abroad, uh, as they like to call it. And and it, there were mutterings, there was talk about Ukraine also joining NATO, and, and therefore Russia felt that it needed to move preemptively to make sure that Ukraine didn't join NATO in the way that those three Baltic states that you mentioned, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, have done. Um, as I said, I don't really buy that argument. I think it's a bit spurious, but um, it is, you know, that, that it's it's clear the Russians aren't happy, haven't been happy about NATO's expansion into those Baltic states. I mean, you know, I, I, look, I've, I've read a bit of history about, you know, uh, about Russia and World War II in particular. I, I'm just, I'm having trouble understanding why there's so much insecurity in Russia about NATO's expansion, because I mean, NATO can't expand any further than the countries that have already peeled off. Well, yeah, but if um, you know, if if Russia made well, we saw something similar with the Cuban Missile Crisis in a way, where Cuba, where Russia was moving its 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 weapon systems into territory that it said was part of its own sphere of influence, communist Cuba, yeah. and that the Americans shouldn't have any any issue with that. Um, <laughs> never mind that, that the nukes were on the on, on US's doorstep. But, mm. you know, that analogy isn't, is, is, uh, is, I think, a fair one. They might feel a little bit threatened by the fact that NATO is, is there. I think, as I said, I, I, I don't necessarily buy it because NATO is defensive anyway. Um, NATO wasn't moving nuclear weapons into those territories, and um, NATO really wasn't aggressively pushing. It was simply allowing other countries who wanted to be a part of it to join. Um, and the, the other argument that you've got to consider, I think, and it's a powerful one, is that if NATO hadn't moved in to the Baltic states, would that change any of the current dynamics? And I don't think the answer. I think the answer is that it, it probably would not. Mm. 
Yeah. Okay. So um, that's where you your roots are, Peter. But your grandmother um, took your grandfather's advice and got your parent or your father. Um, My father and his brother, brother and sister, so the family of yeah, right. two, three kids. Okay. And and what year was that roughly? So that would have been around 1952. So they spent they spent after the war they spent a few years. Um, kicking around the refugee camps in Germany, um, right. waiting for things to settle and for the visa applications to be processed. So 1952 is still a long time. We're talking about what, seven years after the war finished officially. Mm-hmm. And uh, talking to some of my Greek um, friends here in Darwin, uh, and you, you probably do know that Darwin's got a fairly large Greek population, uh, a lot of them trace back to the island of Kalmnos. Um, uh, you know, the stories that they tell me is that there was just no food after World War II, and that's why they got out. Yeah. Look, the, my family felt a little bit too close to the communists um, to, to ever feel comfortable in, in Germany, even though they were in, in uh, West Germany. Um, and there are a couple of famous family stories about how they made a fairly narrow escape from from the Russian soldiers as they were and Soviet troops as they were rounding up people to, to move back into the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, I think that the family really felt, and, and that, that legacy of being in refugee camps too has always stuck with my father. Um, he's incredibly thrifty and never ever ever throws anything away he eats every uh, scrap of food on his table uh, on his plate nothing ever gets thrown away thrown out in, in in my father's family and you know that is because of that period of, of really harsh austerity that they lived through in the, in the post-war years and isn't it funny because it doesn't just apply to europe it also applies to asia because i can say exactly the same thing about my Late grandparents, um, everything was kept. Uh, mm. You you were fed like as if as if it was your last meal, <laughs> and you were yes. you were expected to eat everything on your plate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 funny. It's it's that it's not just limited to Europe, you know. No, I, I, and I think that that experience of of hardship and deprivation really does change the way that you see and understand the world and, and you know, physical physical things and, and things that you need for survival and food in particular. Yeah. So um, they moved to Sydney? Is, is that where they started? No, well, they moved to Cowra. Um, oh, so yes. my, my grandmother wow. hooked up with, yes, my grandfather hooked up with, um, with a, a Latvian guy who was part of the uh, the migrant workers scheme, who, and he worked on the cane fields up in far north Queensland for a while. And then he worked out in the Snowy River scheme. Um, family moved to Cowra for a bit, and then, then they then they wound up in Sydney in Strathfield. Strathfield, right? Okay, yeah, and yeah. and then your father met um, my, my father met my mum. Mum's Australian. Um, uh, my dad's an architect, and he went and studied architecture in, in Sydney. And um, he was, in fact, <laughs> with my aunt, um, he, um, my mum's sister, he, he was travelling around Europe with my mum's sister, and, and my mum was uh, in, 
in London with with my, with her sister, um, and introduced my mum to my dad, and, and somehow dad i'm not sure never really admitted to having a romantic relationship with my aunt but i was at least a little bit of that before he, he kind of switched his switched his aim and, and, and hooked up with my with my mom and i don't know whether that was my dad change dad's change of heart or my aunt's resilience to it but uh, one way or another it was it, he, he wound up with my mom and and so you, your dad traveled around Europe. That's interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. On a on a motorbike. I, look, he he's a perpetually curious guy, um, and he travelled with my aunt across Europe. And this was, you know, we are talking back in in the early early sixties. Right. Um, Not long after he travelled. No, no. So he he basically grew up, had went to high school and. Later part of high school and university, and then went off traveling again. And um, he and my my aunt basically hitchhiked across across Europe, down into Turkey, and, and across into um, uh, Iran, and uh, Pakistan, Pakistan, and up into Afghanistan, and across. So he he did the whole hippie trail before it was hit. And so I can clearly see where uh, where, where his genes ended up. <laughs> 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 right, and so um, so he married your mother. Uh, was that in London or back here in Australia? No, it was back. It was back here in Australia. Right. So, so what was she doing in London? Mum was a legal secretary, and you know, again doing the the, the Aussie thing. You know, spending a, a year or so in London, just stretching your wings, running away from from the olds, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> having a bit of a having a bit of a playtime. Right, right, and so they, they they got married back here, and then uh, of course you came along in '65, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you've got two younger brothers. Yep, two younger brothers, um, Andrew, who's a f- cotton farmer out in northwest New South Wales, and Mike, uh, who's a cop up in Toowoomba. Right, right, but uh, somehow you ended up in 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 Brisbane though, because that's where you went. Well, to study. Th- yeah, the family. So the family moved from Sydney to Brisbane when when I was. Um, teenager when I was about 13 so I had my childhood in Sydney and Sydney in a lot of ways is is always always felt like home it's a bit like slipping on a pair of old Levi's you know it just kind of feels comfortable um even though I've been away from it for a long time and um but Brisbane also feels quite like home so I had high school and university here well you can't have both Peter um so who do you support in the state of origin? That's what's most important. Oh, God. Listen, I, I'm in Queensland now, and for the sake of my own health, I'm <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> right. And so did you live in Indrapilly? Is that where you I lived in, school? Lived in Turinga. Lived in Turinga and went to Indrapilly State High School. Right. Okay. And what was that like back in the, well, I guess, 70s? Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, I guess it was a little bit rough, you know, Brisbane, you know, Indrapilly wasn't quite as shishy as it is now. I don't. It wasn't ever quite the rough end, rough end, of, the roughest end of town. But at that time, Indooroopilly was um, vying with with a couple of other other uh, local high schools like Mitchelton and Toowong for, for for some of the um, bragging rights for you know who could get into the most scuffles. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was it was a great school. I I, I enjoyed it there. You know, it was, it was um, good old fashioned uh, state high school. And what was your what were your favourite subjects at school? Um, I was, I mean, I suppose English was something that I always had a thing for. I was, you know, I liked history and geography. I was generally, I, I was patently not 
ever destined for science, maths and <laughs> maths and, and you know, chemistry, physics were never ever going to be my thing. Um, but I was never really quite sure what I was going to do with do with it all when I was in high school. Right, but you still and you still you must have had some leadership qualities because you ended up being the school captain. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny thing. I, I I wanted to be school captain. I guess it was one of those things that I sort of set my mind to. I'm not sure why I I did, except that it felt like a cool thing to do. <laughs> but maybe it's a bit nerdy to say that, but yeah, yeah. Right, and uh, do you still remember the, the the female school captain? Yeah, Christina Page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is she up to these days? I'm always interested in these sort of little segues. <laughs> Look, it's funny. Just the other night, I bumped into. Um, I was giving a talk at the Brisbane Writers Festival, and a couple of women came up to me afterwards, and and I looked vaguely familiar, but I just couldn't place them until they introduced me as a couple of old school friends from from Andrew Billy. Um, and uh, we spent a, a good old time nattering and asked, you know, playing the, the do you, who do you remember game. And um, I, we, we spoke about Christina and, and none of us were quite sure where, where she's ended up. Right, right. Okay. I, I wish I could, I wish I had a good, a good story to tell you on that one, Leon. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So you finished year 12 and then uh, went and went off to do journalism at QUT. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. So I, I finished year 12 and I, I still had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. Um, I remember sitting down. I knew I needed to study. It wasn't quite, I wasn't really ready to enter the workforce, but I had no clue, honestly, not a single idea about what I wanted to do. And I remember sitting down midnight before the QTAC form was due. The QTAC is the Queensland Tertiary Admission Centre. And they, they had this big fat book with all of the courses that you could do in the state. And midnight before the thing was due, I remember staring at this form thinking, you know, if, if I don't know what on earth I do want to put down here, let me narrow the field a bit and get rid of everything that I, I don't want to do. <laughs> and so I started crossing stuff off, you know, accounting, uh, uh, architecture, no way. That was my dad's thing. You know, and law, no, and medicine, no, no way I was have had the capacity for that. And I just kept crossing and crossing and crossing. And in the end, I realized that the only thing that didn't actively turn me off was, was journalism. And so I think, well, I, I suppose that's it then. You know? um, I went away for a year as an exchange student in South Africa. And while I was there, I, you know, South Africa of all places, particularly around then, was going through a really tough period. Um, apartheid was, was still in full swing, but there was a lot of political turmoil in the country. And I remember then really getting a sense of what journalism could do and, and Believing that it had, the, you know, the, by telling stories that you could actually influence and change people, and, and you know, have a have a role to play in, in world events, and if not have a role, then you could at least have a front row seat to history unfolding. And so, by the time I finished um, in South Africa, I really recognised that actually I'd made the right decision with, with, with my with my career with my. Oh, so you took a courses. gap year and you went to just. South yeah, Africa. to South Africa. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really interesting. So you finished year twelve, and so what did I you took, go to school there, or what did you do? Yeah, so I finished year twelve. I was accepted into QUT or QIT as it was then, as an institute rather than university. And um, 
I deferred for a year and got an exchange, um, became an exchange student. And, and, and yeah, how went did to you get that exchange student? Uh, it was through Rotary. It was through Rotary. And uh, it felt a little bit weird spending another year in high school. But, you know, I, honestly, I didn't have to do a jot of work. It wasn't about the schoolwork <laughs> yeah, exactly. at all. It was just about, you know, I could, I could actually go along and, and have a really good time and, and sit in English, sit, sit in, in classes and, and do whatever yeah. I wanted and, and, you know, not, you know, I wasn't really didn't didn't really give a damn about results. It was just about living and exploring and thinking about the place and meeting meeting people and, and you know seeing how things seeing seeing how things unfolded. And which part of South Africa was that? It was in a little um, country town called Vitrafir, um, uh, a real Afrikaans community in <laughs> what was then the Eastern Transvaal. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it was a very conservative community. So it was the kind of hardcore of, of a pretty hardcore place. Can I ask a question about that? Because I've um, recently had some dealings with South Africans in Darwin. Um, and one thing that I never truly appreciated until I'd sort of met some, I, I worked with South Africans when I lived in Dubai, but um they're all fairly international by nature, but I've sort of recently come across some Afrikaans, South Africans in Darwin, and it struck me that English really isn't their first language. And no, 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 no. By, by a long stretch. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's not. Afrikaans is, is very heavily embedded in, in, in their lang- well, language and culture. Um, yeah. the, the Afrikaners, and this is something a lot of people don't really understand, but Afrikaners... Um, really had a strong sense of themselves as being white Africans, even though their ans- they traced their ancestry back to Dutch immigrants. Um, they really conceived of themselves as almost as indigenous Africans. And they also see themselves, they, ma- they made the connection between the Old Testament and, and Afrikaners. They saw themselves in the Old Testament. They saw themselves as the new Jews of Africa, um, and they interpreted the Old Testament as as, as an allegory for what for, for themselves, um, and not just as a, not just as allegorical, but as as a kind of as a as a coded um, message of their of their own place in the world. Gee, um, the, the yeah the the covenant, which is uh, James A. Michener's famous book really accurately describes the way that a lot of Afrikaners saw themselves. And so they really identified with Jews in a lot of ways, but not just um, in terms of people being, you know, the chosen people being given a promised land, but also as a, as a community who'd been isolated and, and persecuted and misunderstood um, and as a community that always had to pull together and fight for their place in the world. And how did you feel being in South Africa at that time with apartheid in full swing? So, I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding this, you would have been amongst white people the entire time. And yeah. what, what was their take on things from their perspective? Oh, at that point, um, they were vehement, vehement adherents of, of apartheid. I mean, there are a few people that, that would quietly express their their, their um, unhappiness with it, their opposition to it. But you, you've got to remember that I was there as a guest. I was there without family, without friends. And so I saw 
I didn't see my role as, as to take them on in a political argument. Sure. I was there very much to see and to observe and to try and understand the place. And in a way, I, I think that was probably quite good training for, for my future role as a, as a journalist. But I'm not there to necessarily argue or advocate one side or the other, but just to try and observe and understand how it is that people wind up with the kind of ideologies, the kind of beliefs, the kind of attitudes that they have. Could could you understand it when you left? I, I could understand it. I, understanding it isn't the same as agreeing sure, with it or sympathising with it, but I but I did understand where it came from. Yes. Mm. Mm. And uh, do you still maintain contact with that family that you were with? Uh, families? No, I've I've long since lost, oh, right, lost contact right. with them. <laughs> the reason why I'm asking that is because I just finished an audio book of, with Ma- of Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> and he spent uh, his gap year in Australia, uh, just north of Sydney, uh, uh, somewhere in the Hunter Valley. And the way he describes it, Peter, is a, is a cross between the castle and the dish. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was quite funny. So, um, you, okay, so a year, a, a year there, and then you, you came back uh, to Queensland and then started uni? Yeah, yeah, three years at um, QIT, Queensland Institute of Technology. And how did that go? Yeah, it was fine. I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I was never, you know, I, I, journalism for me was was never really about the theory it was really about the practice and it wasn't so much about the practice as it was about the adventure um i very nearly quit i remember i bumped into an old school friend of mine um you know and she asked me what i was doing and i said oh, I'm, I'm studying journalism and she just went she just went pale and went oh my god and i said why what, 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 what's wrong and she said y- y- you've just got endless english essays for the rest of your life <laughs> oh, she, she's right what am i going to do <laughs> um, you know, I, I i didn't do it because like unlike a lot of my colleagues I, I had no particular love for writing my i saw it as i said as a license for, for adventure so as, a, as an opportunity to stick your nose into other people's business as a, as a chance to indulge your curiosity and so you know, as soon as I finished, um, yeah, I, I, I was out of there. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the course. Um, I did reasonably well. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was all about, for me, about getting out and, and, uh, and, and getting into the world. And so what was your first gig? I worked for GMV6 in Shepparton, um, the country TV station up in northeast Victoria. Um, yeah, it was a great a couple of years that I spent down there. Um, and I, you know, I often tell my, my, my own students now that um, I learned my skills as a foreign correspondent in, in regional television, regional Australia, regional journalism, um, because that's where you learn to work on your own. You learn to solve a lot of really difficult problems because, you, you know, you're out in the bush and trying to get places and get to stories. But you also learn about um, turning stories around quickly to really tight deadlines. And you learn about how to make otherwise pretty pedestrian stories interesting for for members of your audience who might have nothing, no particular connection with the story that you're trying to tell. You, you learned how to make these things relevant to a wider audience. 
and you also learned about how to be accurate. You know, there's no place like a regional newsroom. No. Um, if you screw up, then you know that uh, the very next morning when you walk down the street, someone's <laughs> going to tap you on the shoulder yeah. and say, mate, you mispronounced that guy's name. He's my cousin. <laughs> Make sure you don't do it again. Um, I think you're talking about uh, my co-host here as well because he, he, he was a regional uh, radio announcer for a number of years. Yeah, you're just bringing chills to me then, Peter. I was remembering uh, getting quite a few phone calls when I mispronounced the Greek soccer names or in Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. You know, people people respond very quickly and very directly, and you know yeah, you're going to have to face them up, uh, face them when you when you walk into the pub the next day. Yeah, there's no yeah. escaping them. You know, you, you, there's no anonymity out there. Everybody knows who you are, and, and, and they're very small towns, and, and people will call you out. I sort of like the immediate feedback of it, though, because um, yeah. you, know, you, you were never left to hang out there for too long. You, you were soon told what you needed to change and what you needed to improve. And, um, you know, you're, as you say, you, your audience were literally at your doorstep. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So I, I loved it out there. Um, I was there for a couple of years and, and uh, yeah, I was really enjoying it. And Leon, um, you might not recall this, but I'm pretty sure that's where Woody started his journalism career as well. Is that right? It was definitely in Shepherd, and I just can't remember if it was at the the newspaper or the the television station. Right. So a few years there, and then where did you? Hint, uh, how did you? Did, was it? How did you get to Darwin? Well, there was. I was fishing around. I was, you know, looking to to make a move after a couple of years, and and um, this guy up in Darwin. Uh, got wind of the fact that I was looking for a job um, and he approached me and asked me if I'd consider moving up there. Um, his name was Danny Sim and he ran a company called Film North Productions which had the news gathering contract for the 10 network from across the top end. And um, I thought, hell yeah, you know, what a, great, what a great idea, what a great place to go. Um, you know, it was an entry into the Capital City newsrooms because I was producing stories for across the network. Um, but it was also a chance to, yeah, to go up to the top end and have a great adventure. But, uh, you know, Danny, Danny was an interesting character, um, a, a man with a past, I think. We were never quite sure <laughs> what that past was. And I, I, don't want to, uh, yeah, I don't want to speculate too much on, on, on the program. But uh, he was, he was one, of, one of Darwin's more colourful colorful characters. Um, he was, and I learned a lot from Danny as well. He was, he was, he, he, he taught me to always honor my commitments as, as a journalist. If you promised a story by six o'clock on Thursday evening, then you damn well delivered that story by six o'clock on Thursday evening, come hell or high water. And if you promised um, that you would get certain interviews and certain pictures, then you made sure you delivered on that promise. Um, it wasn't always a barrel of laughs. Sometimes we were under a lot of pressure to file, but we always did it. And I, I, I learned a lot from that, that, that kind of discipline. Um, and, uh, yeah, for, for many, many years, I remember um, saying silent thanks to Danny for, for, for teaching me how to be a set-and-forget journalist. Um, you wanted your, the commissioning editors, whoever they were, whether it was in the BBC in London or Al Jazeera or wherever, to be able to know that if they commissioned a piece, they could basically forget about you knowing that being absolutely confident that you you, you deliver um, on time and a, and a product that they could put straight to wear without any tinkering. 
Mm. I didn't even know that uh, Darwin had Channel 10 up here. Uh, no, it didn't. That's the point. There was never any t- Channel 10 up in Darwin. That's what I'm saying. It would, um, Danny ran the, the news gathering contract for the rest of the network. So he basically was a freelance production company um, that agreed to supply news stories for the rest of the 10 network oh, in, the, right. in the southern states. Um, and so, yeah, we would always work to, to whatever stories um, those, those cities commissioned. So, can you um, any any uh, interesting ones that you? Did? Oh, there, there were there were always crocodile stories. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> have to be some croc stories in there. Yeah, there yeah. were croc stories. Um, there was a little bit of territory politics. Um, there was uh, there were stories about mango season. I remember doing a stand up, a piece to camera, well, hardly a stand up, but a piece to camera, hanging upside down out of a mango tree. <laughs> 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 that was like, Right, and and so this what year was this? Because I'm just trying to s- narrow it into what might have happened during those years. So we're talking about the late, this is 1980, 85, 86, 87, I think. Oh, um, yeah. Good times to be in Darwin yeah. too. That those years. Yeah, yeah, they were they were quite amazing times. You know, we we covered, we went right across to um, to. Broome and, and um, the Kimberley region as well, and down to Alice. Um, I remember. <laughs> I remember there was a, a really crazy story about this um, massive event. You know, Ayers Rock is supposed to be this kind of hub for a lot of ley lines that run around the globe, and um, a group of, of a very large group of hippies were, were due to you know, people were due to New Ages. Uh, were due to arrive at Ayers Rock and, and, and circle the rock, um, holding hands, and then and then hum together, and, and hope that the harmonics would enter the, the vibrations, would enter these ley lines, and, and circle the world and heal the world. And uh, as this and, and the idea, and this had also been at the um, after a prolonged period of drought, no, uh, drought, and, and there was also a rabbit plague. And so I remember we were going to go down and do the story about the rabbit plague, and, and then go on to do the story of the. Um, this massive earth healing moment <laughs> as we as we, we we got in the car we had to drive down and as we were on the road um the drought broke and not in a small way but catastrophically broke <laughs> and so we got bogged along the way most of the people the rabbit plague disappeared and most of the people who were supposed to arrive at Ayers Rock um, also got bogged and weren't able to get there <laughs> so it was a was a bit of a disaster. They organised a massive group hug instead. <laughs> <laughs> They'll do anything, those hippies, won't they? <laughs> it, it sounds almost like it was a Burning Man event. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't far off it. It really wasn't. Sounds like the gods were sending them a message. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right, and so, yeah, because at that period, there was Azaria Chamberlain was still uh, – uh, so Azaria, um, who am I thinking of? The mother, um, Lindy. Lindy, Lindy Chamberlain. She would have still been in jail at that point. I think so. Yes, um, I know that her story. I mean, her story never really came up. I, certainly not directly at the time that I was in in Darwin. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, as I said, most of the stories were the weird and wonderful, um, rather than, than than the kind of serious and tragic. It was. It was. Uh. You know, back in those days, it was classic territory fair. Really. 
Even if it wasn't lodging stories, Peter, can you remember um, some of the social conversations that were going on at that time? The, The reason I ask is that, you know, with social media now, things can obviously get around very quickly and there's a lot of topics of conversation that you see on, you know, particular pages that are centred around the Territory at the moment. And a lot of the time you'll you'll hear from older Territorians who'll be saying, oh, this has been going on ever since I've been here. So is there anything that you can recall from that time? Gosh, you're really asking me to delve back into <laughs> the depths of my memory. I know, and, I know you've had a bit go on since then. But... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Peter, I've, I've also got to admit to you that I was um, I was young. I was on an adventure and probably okay. spent far too much time in some of the territory's more notorious bars, fair call, which, fair call. which, which yeah. was also a pretty good, way, effective way of erasing a lot of memories. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I, I remember the cage bar in Parap. Um, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember going. Uh, fishing for barramundi uh, with my girlfriend at the time. We borrowed a tinny from a mate who was with the Parks and Wildlife Service and, and uh, caught then what was probably, if we'd ever bothered to be to be uh, disciplined about it um, and, and have it properly recorded, it was probably a record barramundi for a female <laughs> fisher. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of adventure. Um, I was probably not the most astute political journalist at the time, and, and I, I, I'm sorry, I, but some gotcha. of the, the details of, of what was going around socially at the time, I, I, I really wouldn't want to dive into because, it, yeah, just a bit too, fo- too foggy for me. I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> uh, and where did, do you, did you move around or did you live in uh, one particular spot in, uh, in Darwin? No, it was mostly in, in one particular spot. Um, right. Is that, was it Parap? Parap? Yeah. Parap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Close to the cage. Where else would you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Parap is now quite gentrified, uh, Peter. You'll, you'll find it uh, quite difficult to get, almost as difficult to get into Parap as it would be in some suburbs in Sydney, uh, where <laughs> prices have gone. But, uh, right, That's so, always the way, isn't it? It is, it is. So from, from Darwin you left, and uh, you, is that when you spread your wings and went overseas? No, I, I went to Adelaide. Um, so again, um, after about a year and a half, I was feeling the need to, to develop and, and, and grow. And um, I knew that there was a space in Adelaide and I went south for a couple of years, um, worked out of the Adelaide newsroom. And in 1991, um, a couple of things happened. I, I read a book by a guy called Neil Davis and uh, Sorry, by called Tim Bowden. The book was by Tim Bowden, but it was a biography of Neil Davis. It was called One Crowded Hour, an extraordinary book. Um, the the title comes from a poem that Davis would write in the flyleaf of every one of his notebooks. Um, it goes, sound, sound the clarion, fill the fife. Throughout the sensuous world proclaim one crowded hour of glorious life is worth an age without a name. And it still sends shivers down my spine every time I recite those lines. Um, Davis was an extraordinary journalist who worked across Vietnam. He was incredibly brave. Um, he was in Vietnam. He was across. He worked in Cambodia, across Southeast Asia during some of the, the, the most brutal periods of that region's history. And he ended up dying in a fairly inconsequential uh, attempted coup in Bangkok. But his story wasn't so much one. I mean, obviously, the idea of, of Davis's adventure really caught my imagination, but also his, his incredible professionalism. 
um, and his dedication to the people he was covering. He was really immersed in the in the place, in the in, in the culture, the language of the people that he was covering, and I, I I was really quite inspired by it. And so that was kicking around in the back of my mind, and I was starting to have fantasies of being a foreign correspondent. But of course, you know, I was a young bloke in Adelaide, and was you know I was never really going to have a chance of getting into into one of the into one of the um, the major overseas bureaus. And um, around 1991, you might recall, there was um, a recession. And it was the kind of place where it was very difficult for us to get, for me to get um, an, another job. Um, most news or, newsrooms were, were, were setting staff. And uh, the 10 Network went into receivership. Now, I still had my job, but to save money, the network closed down their London bureau. And I thought, look, this is ridiculous. You can't have one of the main Australian networks without a London correspondent. So I marched into my boss's office and said, look, if I quit um, and take myself to London, my cost to the network, uh, will you use me as a stringer? And uh, he said, sure, <laughs> why not? No, wow. no skin off my nose, no, no cost to us. And so that's what I did. I, I, I resigned from my job. I bought a ticket, a one-way ticket to London. I never really expected to be there much longer than about a year. Hmm. Uh, but uh, in the end, I was away for about uh, 26, 27 years. <laughs> and what, is it, what does a stringer mean? What does that mean? So a stringer is someone who is not, you're not a, a, an employee, but you have a working relationship um, where they regard you as their, their correspondent, their first person to go to if they need a story. And, and you, uh, you constantly contact them for story ideas. It's, it's the kind of, it's um, a freelance relationship. Um, sometimes it comes with a with a retainer. In my case, with the Ten Network, there was there was no retainer. It was just that you know they agreed to to take my story ideas and, and pay me for them if I if they if they, if they liked them. Um, in the end, I didn't do that much for them. I covered the nineteen ninety two elections, um, and I did a few funky stories for them, but um, it was the gateway that I needed to get myself to London um, and to get myself into the journalism community in London and to learn a little bit about some of the other freelance opportunities that were going on there. So is this like Fleet Street? No, no, no. I was I was always – I mean, I, I, I would have moved into Fleet Street if I could, but because I was a broadcaster, I had more connections with some of the, the broadcast agencies. I started doing some just pretty boring routine shift work, um, processing a lot of other material with Viz News, um, which later became Reuters TV, um, processing television um, agency material. Um, and I worked for um, a couple of those news organisations, WTN, uh, which was Worldwide TV News and later became APTM. I also did a little bit of, of script writing for, for the CNN Bureau for a while um, and started doing a little bit of work for what was then um, BBC World TV um, in its very early stages. Again, it was all fairly routine shift work. There was no, nothing in the field, but it was enough to get me to make my to get me a few connections. Mm. Um, and um, I took myself off to Yugoslavia um, in 1992 to, to to cover the war, um, which was quite turned out to be quite an adventure. Yeah, I mean, did you put yourself uh, right in the middle of harm's way there? Well, kind of. It was it was all a bit of an accident, really. It started as all good stories should, with a girl in a pub 
in London. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much right. <laughs> um, this there was this, this spectacular-looking flamehead Irish girl who I saw dancing on the, literally dancing on a on, on the bar, this pub in London, who I immediately was smitten by. <laughs> in my very drunken state, I went over to her and started chatting her up, and, and um, it turned out that uh, she was this Irish girl who was uh, quite a passionate Catholic. Um, who, apart from having a, um, a fetish for dancing on, on pub tables, um, also was was about to head off on a Catholic pilgrimage to a place called Medjugorje in, in, in the Croat-controlled area of Bosnia. And I found this fascinating. It seemed absolutely insane. Um, you know, this town right in the middle of, of a country at war that was still taking these Catholic pilgrims to go off and find God. And... Um, I got her phone number. I, you know, she said, you know, I said, well, it was a fascinating story. And she said, well, why don't you come? I laughed it off, but I told the story about this girl who'd invited me on this trip to Magigori to two friends of mine, one who worked for The Australian and the other who worked for ABC. And, and um, within a couple of days, I got messages from the foreign editors of both saying, for God's sake, if you're at all thinking of going to Yugoslavia, let us know because we're in the market for stories. <laughs> I thought, well, then it's yeah. a no-brainer, isn't it? I've got, yeah. I've got the clients, I've got the story, and, and there's the girls. <laughs> yeah, it's a win-win-win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody wins. Um, and so, yeah, I went. I didn't get anywhere with the girl. It was never really going to happen if I was on a... If she was on a Catholic pilgrimage, but I did get the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I did get a fascinating story about it, and I started to to make some networks. And while I was in the in the country, um, I started to meet some other journalists and and um, found my way into Sarajevo um, when I was doing a profile of one of the senior Australian military officers who was working for the UN military observers at the time. Um, he was the commanding officer of, of what they call the UNOs, the UN military observers, and um, he was the right kind of perfect character for for a uh, for a profile piece. And the only chance that he had to give me an interview was in in Sarajevo. Um, and so I flew into Sarajevo and, and did the interview. And he then buggered off before I <laughs> could leave. And, and soon uh, as soon as he left, um, the Serbs opened up a big offensive on on the airport, and I got stuck in, in Sarajevo for, for, a week, for a few weeks. Wow. Uh, and I ended up spending time going out with a lot of journalists who I came to know very well over the years. Uh, and that's really, that was my first war, my first experience of combat and conflict. And what was that like? Oh, pretty harrowing. Um, I didn't really have the foggiest of what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was literally a baptism of fire. Um we stayed at. I stayed as everybody did then at um, the Holiday Inn, which was right on the front line. And, and there were two sides. You could you could buy the the exp an expensive room, or if you're someone like myself, you could buy a cheap room. But the cheap room was on the side of the building that was facing the Serb yeah. uh, the Serb uh, um, positions, and, and so they were always constantly getting hit by. By artillery rounds and so. Gee. Uh, Not a bad spot for photos, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it was. It was. It was. It. It became quite iconic as as a building, partly yeah. because it got hit so heavily, but also because it was such an easy way of getting some pretty dramatic pictures. Yeah. The journalists. The journalists. And were uh, hard hats going at a premium? Hard hats and body armor were, were definitely going at a premium. 
could you wear the um, uh, you know the, the the press badges and be largely oh, yeah. left to go about your business? Yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, it was it was always a little bit dodgy, but you you had to be very careful. You know, as you're driving up, you, you had to make sure that you you knew where you had your various pet press passes because if you presented your Bosnian press pass at a certain checkpoint, you oh, get yourself yeah, into all sorts of strife. Yeah. And so you have to remember which pocket was which pass, and yeah. you weren't, couldn't always be sure when you approached a checkpoint who was actually manning that checkpoint. And you'd pay right. very close attention to the flags that was flying overhead, over, the, over the checkpoint. But even then, sometimes there were false flags, and, and you'd have to make sure that you checked the insignia of, of, of the officers who yeah, were manning wow. the checkpoint. Lucky it wasn't in the Middle East, though, because half those flags are exactly the same. It's just different configurations. <laughs> They'll get very confusing. Um, did you know what the war was about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was pretty careful to do my homework. I yeah. knew and understood it. Um, it. You know, it was it was a war of – it was a nationalist war driven by the Serbs um, to try and seize control of, of what they considered to be greater Serbia. Um you know, it was the collapse of, of an artificial state that was always fragile. It was never really, never really had its a common sense of identity. Um, mm. You know, Tito was the, the autocrat who led the country for many years. And when Tito died, um, he was a man who played the, the politics of the ethnic communities very, very carefully and very well. But it was all because of the skill that Tito himself applied to the way that he ran those relationships. And when, so when mm. he left, the place started to fall apart, and he was replaced by um, Slobodan Milosevic, who was the ultra-nationalist um, and really used Serb, tried to, to use Serb power to, to dominate the region, of course, in the process, destroyed the, the entire Yugoslavia. Mm. Was he a doctor? No, you're thinking of Dr. Karadzic, um, right. who is the, the, the sort of military leader, um, yeah. weird, strange character. Because which was the guy that sort of slipped into sort of uh, after it all fell apart and, uh, you know, some semblance of peace came back, he just slipped into normal society and then was discovered just living a... <laughs> A, a, a normal life. Yeah, well, Karadzic was Karadzic disappeared from from view. He he went underground, right. and he he, um, he he was sort of you know grew his hair long, and he was tried to you know disguise disguise his face. He tried to disappear, and there are a few pretty um, pretty relentless um, investigators who who tracked ended up tracking him down and finding. Found him. I've forgotten the details of exactly where. Yeah, because it was just it was, like, it was quite extraordinary story. Innocuously in some sort yeah. of house, you know, a bit, yeah. a bit like yes. when they discovered Pol Pot, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You know, just, yeah, yeah, picked him up in the street somewhere. It's just bizarre, honestly. Yeah. Those, those sort of stories when you when you see them. Um, so, okay, so you were you were there for for a few years, uh, and, and but you you travelled around a bit, didn't you? You ended up in South Africa and Mexico. Well, and- yeah, I came back. So I went back. I, I lost a lot of money on that trip, and um, because I was I was I was a pure freelance. I had no news organisation behind me. I knew that if I had if I got into trouble, I'd need to pay my own way out, and that meant I had to buy my own body armour, my own insurance, and honestly. 
you do not want to try and insure yourself for, mm. for a trip into a war zone. Um, like it, I found some crazy insurance brokers in, in, at Lloyd's of London who were willing to do it, but it cost me literally, well, not literally an arm and a leg, I've still got all my limbs, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it cost me an awful lot of money. But I also knew that it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. But uh, I, I, I went to South Africa um, by, built based on the same relationships to cover the elections in 1994 um, that saw the end of apartheid, wow. the wonderful elections that Nelson Mandela won, and that was quite an experience. Um, yeah. I worked for the, again for the ABC and and the Australian. Um, I didn't make any money, but I certainly paid for the trip, and that was that. That all of a sudden made me realise what I could do with the job. <laughs> um, I still remember being there on polling day and to the inauguration ceremony and honestly one of those turning points of history where you really knew and understood that this was a moment that changed everything yeah um it was extraordinary absolutely extraordinary and uh i I went back to london and i remember i was trying to my plan was to i was trying to work out i was trying to crack the british market i was trying to um get into one of the, the main one of the big um, British broadcasters, and I was aiming for the BBC. And my plan was to get a um, get some to apply for a job um, in at, at the World Service. I knew I wasn't going to get the job. Um, that wasn't really the point. The point was to apply for a job rather than have rather than send my CV in at random and have some secretary stick it in the round file. I would apply for a particular job and, and that way the management would be forced to look at my CV and consider it. When I didn't get the job, I'd say, look, fine, thank you for considering me that I'm available for freelancing. How about some freelance work in the newsroom? And then when I established a relationship, then I'd find somewhere that was undercovered and go off and start stringing from some obscure undercovered part of the world. Um, well, the first thing that came up after I made this decision was the Kabul correspondence job. And I remember when I was going through it, thinking, holy crap, am I? it just scared the living daylights out of me. Yeah. Um, the, there was a front line running right through the middle of the city. The, there were artillery duels across the city between the rival factions at the time. The BBC Bureau was, you know, was, was its own bunker. It was all sandbagged. It had its own electricity system, its own um, its own water supply system it was completely self-contained. You know, it was it was it was just a terrifying thing to be to, to behold from the outside. And so I remember when I lodged the application, thinking, you know, sort of, Phew, thank Christ, I'm not going to get this one. You know, you'd have to be a complete nut job to go. Yeah. And um, I applied for it, and <laughs> in the damn thing. <laughs> it was, I, was, I, was, I was speechless. Yeah, exactly. You've you got to be careful what you wish for. Yes. Um, but I realized that they gave it to me on the strength of the work that I'd done in Yugoslavia and South Africa. I demonstrated without really understanding it. I demonstrated that I had the skill and the capacity to operate in that kind of environment on my own to produce good quality, credible, serious journalism um, without, with minimal interference from 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 London without needing too much heavy support and that's what that's what you had to do in, in a place like Kabul so so yeah I went off to went off to Afghanistan 1995 which was the time when the Taliban first emerged mm. right. so this is before 9-11 even yeah yeah in fact that whole 9-11 became a real a real pivot point for me 
Um, I, we can talk about that shortly if you like, but it, it was a really important moment when I, when I understood that, well, let me, let's backtrack. I mean, this was, this was at a time when, um, when the Islamists, when we weren't at war with, with Islam, mm -hmm. it was a time when as a journalist, as a white Western Christian or certainly non-Islamic journalist could very, would, would, was able to cross the front lines. In fact, I genuinely felt that it was in, the, in my own interests um, in terms of safety. It was a matter of my own personal security to cross the front lines um, because I felt that I, it was important, as a, as a clean-shaven white guy in a country full of brown, brown hairy-ass blokes, um, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And mm -hmm. sooner or later, someone on the other side of any given front line was bound to see me in their rifle sights. And I didn't want that person to see me as the enemy and feel that he had reason to pull the trigger. Mm. And so whenever the front line stabilised, we would put a huge BBC flag on the back of our Land Rover. It was a very distinctive Land Rover. Um, and I would drive across, we would drive across the front lines and I'd meet the commanders on the other side um, and we'd sit down and have tea and I'd you know, hear their stories and, and if they had anything worthwhile saying, then I'd cover the stories. And it was a way for me of, of making it very clear to all of the warring parties that I was not a participant in this war, that I was merely an observer. And, and make no mistake, the BBC was massively important in that conflict in Afghanistan. It always has been, um, but back then in particular, because it was the only medium that really counted. Um, in, in, in Afghanistan at the time, there were, there were only three full-time foreign correspondents who were based there. There was uh, myself and I ran, had the BBC and Reuters string and a whole bunch of others. I worked for The Guardian, I worked for The Australian, I worked for ABC Radio Australia, I worked for um, CBC in Canada, for Deutsche Welle in Germany, all of these strings. There was another guy, Tim Johnston, who worked, had a similar range of strings um, for um, the Associated Press. Um, he had um, um, Newsweek, he had um, the Times of London, um, a whole bunch of others, Economist. Um, and then there was another guy, a third guy, Terence White, who worked for Agence France Press, the French news agency. And so the three, the world's understanding really hinged on, on the work that the three of us did from Afghanistan, but also inside Afghanistan. Radio was the only medium that counted. And there were, apart from the few propaganda outlets that the local warlords ran, the only other radio stations that covered the country were Voice of America and the BBC. Um, and the language services, the Farsi and, and Pashto language services, would translate my dispatches and broadcast them back into Afghanistan. And so, you know, as the, the only correspondent there, um, I was the work that I was doing was was absolutely vital to to the country's understanding of itself as well. Um, it was a huge responsibility. And thinking back at the time, thinking back now, I don't think I really fully understood what a what an important job it was. Um, mm. Certainly not before I went. And, and you know, as the, the time as my time there went on, I really did come to understand what a what a huge responsibility it was. But it was also the time when I probably learnt more about my professional skills and, and, and the importance of, of my professional integrity uh, than just about anywhere else that I've ever worked. 
So, Peter, this this would have been sometime um, after the end of the war with Russia, where the vacuum was left, the Taliban kind of moved in. What yeah. what state was the country in at this point? A complete a complete mess, a complete basket case. So. You're right. What happened was that the Russians left in 1979, uh, sorry, 1989, and they installed a puppet regime that survived until 1992. And in 1992, um, the, there was, the, the, that regime fell to the Mujahideen factions that had been fighting to oust the Russians. But these factions were very, very deeply divided. And so when the Russians, when the, the, the Russian-backed government collapsed um, and Najibullah, the president of the government, um, took refuge in the UN compound there, um, the, the, the factions, the warlords, started fighting amongst themselves. And what you had was, um, if you excuse the expression, a complete shit fight um, between these rival militias over the capital, Kabul, but also all around the country. And there were there were literally, there was more than a dozen different factions that were often formed in loose coalitions, loose alliances, and they're always shifting and, and moving around. Um, and it was incredibly complex um, mess, but it was also the, the living definition of, of anarchy. Um, now, the Taliban formed in 1994, and there was still a very small, obscure group. People were vaguely aware of them, but they were never really particularly influential at the time, but they formed as a reaction to the violence um, and anarchy that the warlords had, had brought on, on the country. There was no government to control the place. Um, it, was, it was literally the rule of the gun. And the Taliban, who had, emer- who had, been, had come from really deeply traumatized communities, the refugee communities in Pakistan, felt that they had to regain control and establish some kind of law and order. And they said in the absence of any kind of government, in the absence of any legitimate judicial system, all we have is the Quran and Sharia law. And so we have to use that as a way of reestablishing authority. We've got no time, no, 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 real, excuse, no real opportunity for the niceties of, 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 you know, of Western jurisprudence. Um, if you're caught breaking the the, the law. If you're caught stealing, then you lose a hand. If you're caught um, in, a, in, in adultery, then then you get stoned. It's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. And although it seems shockingly brutal to us now, at the time, again, I, I would never have endorsed the Taliban's approach. Um, but I also could understand the environment from which it came. A lot of the locals that we were, were reporting on, that we were talking to, then I remember, were really, really uncomfortable with the Taliban's brand of radical conservative brand of Islam, but they also wanted to be able to get their stuff to market without having to go through a dozen checkpoints and pay off a bunch of stoned mujahideen with bribes. Um, They really didn't like the idea of of constantly being threatened by these guys. They didn't, you know, their their women were vulnerable to to rape and, and, and serious abuse. And so when the Taliban came and cleared out the checkpoints and established law and order and control over these communities, um, a lot of the locals said, well, look, we, we don't necessarily like the ideology, but we sure as hell like the security that they bring. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was always skeptical about how long it would last, but I could also see why they were so successful. Mm. 
Yeah, well put. That's that's a really great succinct description of it because there'd be very few people in Australia who would really understand that. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important that we, that we do understand it. Um, again, I'm going to underline this in red. It's not that I endorse the Taliban in any stretch or their, mm. their policies or attitudes. But if you understand that historical and social context, then you can see how a traumatized community that has been through such a long period of violence and bloodshed would feel that this perhaps was a, was, was a route that is worth taking, it's worth trying. Yeah. And did they kind of, I mean, you said you crossed the front lines. I mean, that must have, in itself must have been pretty scary. Did, did you find that when you sat down and, and spoke to the Taliban that they were fairly yeah. normal? Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Well, not I mean, they, they, you know, they had they had some pretty conservative views, but you know, again, remember, this was not a time when the West was at war with Islam. Yes, yeah, and, and we tend we tend to forget that our our, our current historical view is so coloured by nine eleven and the war on terror, and mm. really the war on terror is is a you know is really un, only intended as as the war on as the war on Islam. That's that's a fairly fairly you know, thinly disguised war on Islam. Um, and, and we've we've come to regard Muslims as terrorists, um, and the Taliban as as you know haters of, of of white Western ways. And that was certainly not the way it was back in 1995. We'd you know we'd all the time go and have these big theological discussions and debates with the Taliban commanders. I never felt personally threatened by them. Um, you know. We didn't. I didn't didn't necessarily agree with their ideology. They didn't like my theology or, or my ideology, but they accepted and understood that that's who I was. Um, and you know, we had a you know kind of mutual degree of mutual respect. I remember one of the big commanders, a guy called Mullah Rabani, this huge, big, you know, sort of Pashtun guy with big, you know, hands the size of of of. of Tomahawk stakes. <laughs> right. uh, I would sort of grip my hand and say, "Ah, oh, Mr. Peter, why you not come to Islam?" And I said, oh, "I'm a little When Allah considers me worthy, I'm sure He'll show me a sign." And there was always a big <laughs> laughter, a pat, slap on the back, and then we'd sit down and get on with business. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, it was, but it was after nine eleven um, and the and, and, and the Western invasion. Where were you? Where were you when nine eleven happened? Mm-hmm. I was in um, I was in Lima in Peru. Um, ah. I, was, <laughs> I was covering wow. a conference of of um, the uh, the organization of, of American states. Um, in fact, at the conference that uh, the then um, the American Secretary of State Colin Powell was at, um, and I remember the shock. I remember watching nine eleven unfold. And I realized at that moment that Afghanistan was really going to be the, yeah. the center of, of, of an awful lot of, of um, world history for a period. Were, were um, you kicking yourself that you weren't in one of the countries that you'd previously been in prior to that? Well, I went back to Afghanistan pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the BBC mobilized one of its famous um, war efforts and poured extraordinary amounts of, of people and staff into there and because of my my experience my understanding my knowledge of the place of course i was a part of that team mm. um but and, and here's the thing that i and, and let me talk a little bit about why i think 9-11 changed so much particularly for journalists 
Um, you see, in wars prior to 9-11 that were often over physical, tangible things, you know, the war in Yugoslavia was about ethnicity and about territory. And these were things that you could physically touch, that you could put your finger on. Uh, wars over land or even wars of faith, um, you can still define by person's background or by, by land, by territory. And in those kinds of conflicts, journalists are observers, you're not participants. But what 9-11 was, or what George W. Bush declared this to be a war on terrorism. And in that war of, of an ism, it turned that conflict into a war of ideology. And in that war of ideology, a war of isms, all of a sudden the battlefield is no longer just about territory where journalists are observers. The battlefield becomes part of the, the space where those ideas and ideologies are transmitted. And that all of a sudden means that journalists unwittingly become a part of that battlefield. And we become quite literally targets. This isn't a metaphorical idea. This is not some sort of abstract concept. Journalists were literally being targeted because of the journalism that they were doing. If journalists, as Al Jazeera did back then, um, did what they were supposed to do, what I was doing back in 1995 and crossing the front lines to get to try and understand what was motivating the other side, then you became guilty of advocating terrorist ideology. Al Jazeera got an interview at the time with the one person that I'd wager any journalist would have given their right arm for, and that was with Osama bin Laden. Wow. Now, again, it was, in my view, that was legitimate journalism because you're interrogating the man who was accused of being behind this. You, it was a way of, of understanding. We needed to understand what motivated him, what drove him, what, what was the ideology that, that, had, that was behind the 9-11 attacks. It was legitimate journalism. And yet, George W. Bush, the American administration at the time, declared that to be um, uh, an act of, of, of promoting terrorist ideology, an act of, of terrorism itself, and they dropped a bomb squarely on the Al Jazeera Bureau in Kabul. Um, the Taliban, on the other hand, and I'm not blaming the West alone or the Americans alone for this, um, the Taliban that I'd so frequently gone to see and suddenly became and suddenly started targeting journalists. I remember there was a convoy of carrying some very dear friends of mine, including one of my a wonderful friend, Maria Grazia Cattuli. Um, they were driving up to Kabul, and um, they, were at, they were stopped at a, at a Taliban checkpoint. And um, the guys on the checkpoint let all of the Afghans go, but they took the journalists into the hills, and they murdered them, they executed them. Um, and we, those guys were eventually caught and placed on trial. In their trial, they acknowledged that they were acting on, on the orders of their senior commanders um, explicitly to come after journalists. And so journalists all, all of a sudden became legitimate targets. And I think it was, in my mind, I think it was the way in which 9-11 became a war of ideologies, a war of isms, in a way that we hadn't seen for a very, very long time. And so... Uh, how long did you cover the, the war on terror? Well, in all sorts of guises, I suppose. I mean, I, I was involved in um, Afghanistan, obviously, through through that period in the post-9-11 era. Um, I was there in, in 2002 and several times after that, um, often embedded with British troops for the BBC. Um, I was involved. I went to Iraq. I covered the war in Iraq. Um, 
and you know, I was involved in in um, a lot of sort of minor branches, I guess, of the war on terror in places like uh, Somalia um, and uh, Sudan, um, where we saw outposts, I guess, of, of, of the conflict. So off and on in all sorts of various forms uh, for a good decade or more. And, and then you ended up in Egypt. Yeah, Egypt. <laughs> a little holiday. <laughs> a little, yeah, a little, a little, little side, little side, a little sojourn. <laughs> um, yeah, at that stage, I was working for Al Jazeera. Um, I was their bureau's East Africa correspondent, um, and I was covering um, East Africa for well, the Horn of Africa, so Somalia, um, Ethiopia, Eritrea. Um, South Sudan, Kenya, Tanzania, and the Great Lakes region. So Rwanda, Burundi, um, Uganda, Eastern Congo, and, and Tanzania. And um, they called me up to to Cairo um, in 2013, December 2013, to cover the Christmas New Year period when they were a bit light-staffed. Um, I didn't know the place. Well, I hadn't been before. Um, and, but there was a lot of political turmoil at the time. Um, you might remember the Arab Spring from yes. 2011 toppled Hosni Mubarak mm. and there was you know, a period, there was a, a year of a real joy in, in um, a political possibility in, in Egypt at the time um, there were fresh elections in the middle of 2012 um, which the Muslim Brotherhood won the first free elections in that country's history and although it won it under contentious circumstances there was no question of fraud but the, um, the, the centrists lost the, the vote um, because their vote was split. There were four candidates, and as often happens, it was the sort of the centrist, which I think probably would have won um, the vote had they, had they had a united candidate. Um, and so the runoff became, was ultimately between the Muslim Brotherhood leader, Mohamed Morsi, and um, a candidate who represented the old regime and a lot of people felt that there was no way they were going back to the old regime after shedding so much blood and so Morsi won but he didn't do a very good job you know I've, I've seen a lot of revolutionary movements over the years and, and you know one thing I've learned is that the, the, the ideology the organizational capacity the sort of mentality that you need to run a successful revolution are precisely the opposite traits that you need to run a successful government Yes. Um, and um, the Brotherhood was really on the nose by the middle of 2013. Um, there were a lot of street protests, a lot of anti-government um, demonstrations, and the military stepped in and said, listen, we're a democracy now. Um, you rule at the will of the people. You've clearly lost the confidence of the people, and so you've got to step down. And by the way, here's a gun to your head to make sure that you do it. Um, it was It's a bit controversial, but... Um, I saw it as a coup, and I think generally now it's understood as a coup. They were forced out from power, and there was an interim government that was in place. And so when I arrived, there was still a lot of street protests as the interim government <clears throat> was trying to organise fresh elections. Um, and um, it was yeah, it was a very very toxic, bitterly divided country that I that I went to, to cover. So my plan was just was just to basically tread water for the for the network. I wasn't doing anything particularly radical, just um, you know, giving them stories of, of what was taking place. Um, the government would 
announce some changes to the constitution. Um, I'd introduce, I'd go and interview the opposition, which of course at the time, party that was last in power um, was the Muslim Brotherhood, and find an analyst to make sense of it all. It was vanilla journalism. How long were you expecting to stay there for? Oh, only two or three weeks. Wow. And, yeah. and, then, and, and then something ter- went terribly wrong. Yeah, I, there was a knock on the door of the hotel one night. Um, I, hadn't, you know, I, mean, I knew that we needed to be very careful about the reporting that we were doing because, of, because it was so toxic, because the Brotherhood was starting to be accused of being involved in acts of terror. But as I said, because I thought what we'd been doing was pretty vanilla, um, I wasn't anticipating any issue, but there was a knock on the door on the night of December 28th. And, um, yeah, I cracked open the door. I was about to go. I was just getting ready to go out for dinner with a friend of mine. And um, as I opened the door, I was flung in as if there was a powerful spring behind it, and a bunch of guys charged in. Uh, they're all in plain clothes, but they moved in a way that was pretty professional. They ransacked the room. They gathered up all my gear. Um, and marched me off and threw me into the police cells with um, with one of my colleagues um, told me I was under arrest. Did they tell you what for at that time? No, nah, no, nah, there was an arrest warrant, but they said that it was in Arabic. They said, well, can you read Arabic? I said, no, and they said, well, tough. <laughs> um, any access to uh, legal professionals or consular help or anything like that? I, I had some consular help pretty quickly, in fact. Um you know, being journalists, we're pretty good at getting word out, and, and um, the we, it became known very quickly that we'd been arrested. And, and Al Jazeera, one of the first calls that they made was to the Australian Embassy, or the Australian DFAT um, consular twenty-four hour consular helpline, and told them that I'd been detained. And so, a couple of days, the first after I went um, straight, well, after a couple of days. In, police cells, cells, I went into interrogation to, for, for interviewing um, mm. at the National Intelligence Directorate where there was a consular official from the Australian Embassy. But you know, there was very little that she could do beyond give me a list of, of, of English-speaking lawyers and, and yeah. you know, read me my rights and left me, left me to it. Um, I've always wondered in that situation because we always hear about consular help or what have you. But, uh, you know, they'd be rarely lawyers themselves and really they're just there to to help you as best they can. But particularly in a country like that and in similar countries in that region where they don't operate the same way as a Western country does, it's... No, they don't. But even if they did, there is... I mean, you've got to remember that that, that, um, embassies have to run on on the, on the basis of respect for the local legal system, even if right. they recognise that it might be corrupt. Um, we don't expect the Egyptians to interfere in our judicial process, and likewise the Australians really have limited capacity to get involved in, in any case. What they can do is make sure that, that I, as an Australian, know my rights within the Egyptian legal system so that they, they understand that I know what the system is, what my rights are, how to access legal representation and make sure that, that you know, I can get access and that I can send messages back to my family and they can get messages to me and, you know, that, that, that they keep as many lines of communication open as possible and that they act as witnesses to make sure that, 
what is, what my conditions are, are reasonable yeah. as far as they possibly can. Now, they can't always do that, mm. but that's what the role of the consular service is. It's not to spring you from prison. Yes. Um, and, you know, that it, it, it's, and I've learned very quickly that that's not what they expect that they, they can do. It, it would be unreasonable of me to, to expect them. Unless, of course, it's a Bruce Willis movie, and then that's very different. <laughs> yeah, 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 and believe me, uh, as much as I love Erica Talana, the consular officer, she, she's not Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> and so, when okay, so you got arrested, then charges were laid. You, yeah, you, you it went, took a little while. It, right. well, it took a little while for, for, for the charges. For me to understand the charges, and they were pretty serious charges. You know, I was accused of aiding and abetting a terrorist terrorist organization, financing a terrorist organization, being a member of a terrorist organization, and advocating terrorist wow. ideology. Muslim Brotherhood, oh, um, right. um, and they weren't prescribed as a terrorist organization hmm. at that point. Um, that took this, a little while. This is because you interviewed them. Well, I, 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 look, I honestly don't know. Yeah. I, the, I think, as far as I can tell, it was because there was this narrative that was going around in Egypt at the time that the Qatari government supported the, the Muslim Brotherhood, and because Al Jazeera was um, financed by Qatar, um, oh, yes. it was therefore we were therefore agents of the Qatari government, and therefore right. um, somehow being involved in secretly covertly at working yes. with and supporting the Brotherhood. Now, the problem was that Al Jazeera wasn't on trial. It was me and my two yeah, colleagues. Yeah, correct. Um, and and your I, two colleagues uh, were from, uh, one was from Egypt, was he? And well, both, both were Egyptian. One was pure Egyptian, the other was Egyptian-Canadian. Oh, right. Um, oh, wow. um, dual national. I mean, Egyptian by, uh, yeah, his parents were both Egyptian, but, but he also had a Canadian nationality. Mm. And so, yeah, um, we, we and, and, and the charges were explicitly against us. Mm. And I said, look, if, if Al Jazeera is not on trial here, we are. And so there is no evidence that we have done anything wrong. We, we didn't, you know, we were, <laughs> it, was, it was just laughable. Mm. Um, but that was, I think, part of the narrative. Now, honestly, I, I don't think they may have, there may have been some belief in that. But I'm not convinced that that was the reason why. If they wanted to make a case about Qatari malfeasance, then there are plenty of other people that they could have gone after who had much deeper connections with mm. the Brotherhood, legitimate connections, by the way, as journalists, um, who they could have made the case for, made a convincing conspiracy theory out of. Um, it made no sense to come after an Australian You'd only been in the country for a couple of weeks to Egyptians if that was the case that you were trying to make. Um, and so I don't believe that was the reason why they came after us. I'm pretty sure that it was about sending a message to other journalists, both locals and foreign, that you do not speak to the Brotherhood mm. um, because this is what will happen to you. Now, they chose us, I think, because we were politically convenient, because we, we fitted that overall narrative. Yeah. But it wasn't about that. As I said, if it was about that, then, then there are others that they could have and probably should have gone after to make the case. And so you were, you, you had a trial date? 
Well, no, I was, I was in solitary confinement for a period. Yeah. Well, and why and then, was that? He's a troublemaker, can't you tell? <laughs> yeah, look a little bit nasty. Uh, no, I, look, it's it's partly routine. I think most prisoners, you know, I was, I was been talking to Kylie Moore Gilbert, um, the Australian academic who was imprisoned in Iran, and she went through a much longer period of solitary confinement. I think it's mm. partly it's about, well, it's about power and, and it's about psychology. You know, you realise that prison is a psychological problem. If you're not being physically tortured, and we weren't, and there were a few guards that would knock us around a bit, but nothing that would amount to outright torture, um, physical torture. And so in the absence of that, you realise that the prison is all about the psychology of confinement and what it does, what your own head does to itself, the way mm. that your own head can eat itself up. And I, so I, I think that, most people in those sorts of countries go through a period of, of solitary confinement as a way of trying to, to break you in the system. So how, how long were you in solitary? Oh, not that long, just a couple of weeks. Right, but I mean, I mean still, that we talk about, you know, COVID and, and yeah. having to stay at quarantine, self isolated. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be sending everybody off the deep end. Um, yeah. uh, um, so how uh, how do you cope with that? Well, the time is the is the issue. You know, an hour can or a minute can feel like like a year, and, and you know, a day can sometimes flash by in the space of a minute. You've got to get hold of time. If you, one of the things about solitary is that you lose your grip on time. And I, I could see one of the first cells I was in, um, I saw some guys who'd been stuck in this impossibly crowded cell, a kind of eight-foot square cell, two metres by two metres roughly, where 16 guys were crammed in, and some of them were going quite literally crazy. And I could see what was happening to them because they'd lost touch with reality. They'd lost touch with, with time, with the diurnal rhythms. And in solitary, it's even worse because you don't have any social connection. You've got no way of no no way of doing anything. So you've got to grip, get a grip over time. One of the things, two two things that were really helpful. One was um, a window that was high on the prison wall facing the east, and so for a few hours each day, I couldn't see out the window um, except the, you know a little patch of sky. But for a few hours each day, the sun would cast a shadow on the on, on the wall opposite. And I could make a kind of crude sundial. Now, of course, the distance of all that the sun travels is meaningless unless you've got some way of measuring that. Of course, there's the call to prayer in an Islamic country. Yeah. You know roughly how long the time between calls to prayer is, and so you can roughly gauge how long it takes the sun to traverse that period, and you can break that stretch of time down into yeah. hour chunks and then half-hour chunks, and you, so you can get a vague idea of time passing. When you do that, you, you can then impose order on, and, and, and discipline on it. You can spend time in meditation, which is what I needed to do a lot of. You spend time on exercising. I spent a lot of time just working out because I needed to be physically tired so at the end of each day I'd be, I'd be exhausted enough to actually sleep. Um, the worst thing is disrupted sleep. If you, if you don't sleep, then you lose the diurnal rhythms and that's when your brain starts to really lose touch with, with reality. And you also need to be creative. You need to keep mentally stimulated. 
So there are all sorts of things, all sorts of games that I play, mental games. Um, I discovered that the food would sometimes come wrapped in aluminium foil, and I discovered that um, the foil sticks quite nicely if you smear it with soap to the polished concrete wall. And, of course, with foil, you know, there's a shiny side and a matte side and a dull side. And so if you tear the foil up, you could make these murals. I could make these big foil murals on the, on the wall. Um, and I made this huge foil sun at the point where the sun hit the, the, the mural, hit the wall. You spend a lot of time over these sorts of things. Um, we unth- I unthreaded the prison uniform, got cotton and made these little, these little um, um, hanging decorations around the cell, you know, uh, out, of, out of cotton and, and tin foil and some sticks that you'd occasionally pick up in the exercise yard. You know, little things like that that where you had to be, I forced myself to be creative, to do things creatively with the time. And I didn't realize it at the time, but meditation, exercise, and creativity, mind, body, and soul, things that I was actually, without being consciously aware of it, making sure that I was paying really particular attention to um, and in placing and, and getting some kind of control over, over the daily over the daily rhythms and making sure that I was staying sane and focused and and, and active. And, and there's wow. no material at all there, Peter. Sorry, say again? They, they didn't provide you with any reading material at all. No, no reading material, no writing material. Oh no lights in solitary, are there? Uh, no, there is. Uh, there was oh, a light. Okay. There, was, there, was, there was lights out, so okay. day and night. I mean, there are others, other situations where you didn't, but in, 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 in my particular circumstances, you had lights. So let's just timeline that a bit. The the fellas kicked in your hotel door. They took you off to a, yeah. a jail, uh, like a holding. Yeah. At, at this, so, what's the time before you got charged with something? So okay, let me run through it. I was held in some really crowded police cells for for about uh, four or five days, and then moved into um, and, and moved into um, the interrogation phase. Um, I was kept in solitary for much of that interrogation phase, um, taken out of solitary for to speak to the interrogators, and then went back into solitary. I spent after the solitary ended. I I was um, allowed out in the exercise yard with some other prisoners who were all political prisoners. Um, really, the, the a lot of the secular leaders of of the January twenty fifth revolution, the Arab Spring revolution, who were found themselves in prison because they were somehow threatening to the military regime that had taken over power. Um, and when I was there for about a month and a half, two, almost two months, um, before we were formally charged and the prison, uh, the trial began. And um, I was then moved into another prison where, with my two colleagues, um, a supermax prison called Mulhak al-Mazrah, and at Mulhak, um, we were imprisoned alongside most of the senior leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was clearly where the government felt, or the authorities felt, we, we belonged. Right. Um, and we were there throughout the length of the trial, which lasted another four or five, but another five months, I think, the whole trial to go through. Um, uh, I seem to recall the footage um, at the time. The sort of two things that stood out were um, members of your family who were, you know, constantly being interviewed and uh, I guess just completely perplexed with what was going on. And then 
the visions of a very crowded courtroom. Now, I'm just trying to make sure I've got this right. Were you guys kind of in cells in the courtroom? That was a cage. It was yeah, a big cage. Yeah, I don't want so to say we were, a cage, but yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's what it was. It was this huge cage, and so the idea was to isolate. Well, partly it was it was the theatre of the thing. It was to yeah to make us look like wild animals that, were, that had to be you know isolated. We're too much of a threat to the rest of the of, of the ordinary people, and had to be protected from them. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was it was a bit of theatre, I think. And your legal representation was was that. Uh, someone that you found did Al Jazeera assist with that, or how did that work? No, Al Jazeera found found our lawyers. Yeah. Okay, so you were comfortable and confident in them. Well, as much as I could be. I mean, I didn't feel. I, I to be honest with you, there was the relationship between the allegations that we were facing, the charges we were facing, and the reality of what we had been actually doing was so wide, the gulf mm. was so wide that I felt that a first-year law student could have <laughs> defended us. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't really have to do anything to, to prove our innocence. Um, and so it really wasn't ever really going to be dependent on, on, on the professionalism or otherwise of our lawyers. Um, it was really about the integrity of the judicial system and, and whether it was willing to embarrass itself by convicting us on that evidence so uh, that trial came to an end and and uh, how did that play out well, <laughs> well convicted and sentenced to seven years you know yeah. was, that was that was that ruined the day can i just um, ask you that let's just pause there for a second peter so i'm picturing you in in this cell in court and uh the circus going on there for five months as you say which just seems incredible considering, you know, the Zach Rolfe trial was over in a few weeks. I mean, gosh, five months for this trial. Yeah, I mean, that, there was literally weeks between hearings. Right, mm. right. Um, you know, there was, there was never any – There was I don't think there was ever any days when we had consecutive – the hearings on consecutive days. Okay. There was always a period of, of a week, two weeks, between sometimes I think three, three or four weeks yeah. between mm. hearings. And this whole time you're thinking, this is so stupid, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end uh, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And then the verdict gets handed down, and I'm straight away thinking of Chappelle Corby, you know, standing there. I just, you know, you remember seeing her face when, <laughs> when the judge said 20 years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so in your case, seven years, and I'm not trying to compare the two, by the way, <laughs> but um did did your body sort of go into a kind of freeze did you like think holy crap yeah i didn't couldn't believe it i i I mean i remember i've seen the footage Hmm. and there was a hell of a lot of noise huge eruption of noise but at the time i remember my ears ringing and all i could think of you know those two words just cycling through my head seven years seven years seven years yeah. Um, you know, because we 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 felt we'd always hoped, obviously, that we'd be acquitted. We thought that perhaps we'd be convicted and sentenced to time served. That way, everybody gets what they want. The authorities get their convictions. We get to go home. Everybody's happy. Um, we thought maybe they convict us and say, give us a few extra weeks to you know, just to be seen to be swinging their willies around. But to be convicted and sentenced to seven years wasn't something we ever really seriously 
countenance. And looking back, maybe that was naive, but mm. you know, um, it was yeah. It, it's it was a, a long a lot of yeah. It was it was a it was a bad day. It was a very difficult day. I bet you were reconsidering your decision to get a first year lawyer at that point too. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, no. Honestly, as I said, I, I it, it, it was quite clear it had nothing to do with the evidence, and it yeah. doesn't matter how much you know. How I mean, you know, I don't. I'm not suggesting we had a bad lawyer. I'm just saying that the lawyer wasn't ever really going to be able to change the outcome one way or the other. Gotcha. And so you get taken back to your cell, and you're thinking about your family. What What are you thinking about there? Oh, I was just thinking about. You know, how my life had seemed to just vanish in, a, in an instant. You know, seven years, looking back now, seven years isn't that long. But, you know, when you're sitting in prison or sitting in a courtroom, um, and, you know, that, that feels like a very long time stretching out in front of you in some pretty, pretty horrific conditions. Um, you know, sometimes it was all I could do to get through to the end of the day in, in, in the cell, psychologically, and the idea of, of seven years just become it's just struck me as it's just too too heavy to bear thinking about mm. and how long were you actually in there before you, you were let out so in total i spent 400 days in prison it was a neat round number one of those wow. numbers that i tell my students yeah. to be very suspicious of but it was exactly <laughs> and and then you were let out on a technicality no not a technicality um i it was it was part of um so the the campaign was was colossal. It was huge, um, and there was an enormous amount of diplomatic pressure on, and, and social media pressure on the Egyptians. Um, the Latvians weighed in. They they brought the European Union into the fight. Um, the Australians don't have much leverage, but the Europeans sure as hell do. Um, Barack Obama himself got involved. Jeez, he, he was then president of the United States. I saw him afterwards um, and um, had the chance to thank him. And he said, yeah, he said, I raised every time I spoke to President Sisi. Um, and so I know that there was an awful lot of pressure on the government about us. I was released on an executive order. That means a special presidential order, which gave him the authority to release any, any foreign national that was inside the judicial system to either complete their sentence or complete the judicial process in the country of origin. Now, in international law, that, that's a meaningless concept. You can't mm. do that without a, uh, without a, a formal extradition treaty. And, and as you may know, Leon, these extradition treaties are hellishly complicated things to negotiate um, and you know, can't just be done overnight. Um, and so it was pretty meaningless. But the, you know, as far as the Australians were concerned, there was no charges that they recognised, no sentence as far as they were concerned that I needed to serve and so no judicial process to complete. <laughs> uh, no trip to Bogo Road. No trip to Bogo Road. No. <laughs> no. Wow. And so you were let out, but your your colleagues were still left left there for a while. Yeah, so basically what, it's a little bit complicated, so just bear with me while I talk you through it. Um, we were convicted. We were sentenced to seven years. We had the chance to appeal our conviction and the appeal was over that sentence on appeal, our convictions were overturned and a retrial was ordered. Now in in, in that gap between um, having the retrial ordered and the retrial actually beginning was I think a political opportunity for the president to take me out of the system because we weren't sort of formally in the clutches of 
the judicial system at that point. We were simply there um, on remand, waiting for the trial, to, the next trial to begin. And so you know, I won't bother bore you with the internal political rivalries within Egypt, but I think that was presented an important political opportunity. And so I was taken out of the out of the country on that executive order. But two weeks after I got back to Australia, the retrial began, and I was named as a defendant alongside my my two colleagues, which seemed spectacularly weird. Yeah, um, they were released on bail, um, but the trial ran for another five months once again. And at the end of that period, we were all reconvicted, and they went back to prison. And we really stepped up the the campaign to get them out. And they they were in there for another couple of weeks before they were finally pardoned and released. Um, but the pardon didn't ex- extend to me. So technically, I am still a convicted terrorist and I still have an outstanding prison sentence to serve in Egypt if I ever go back there. Yeah, I was wow. Goodness me, Peter. So how does this, how does some 400 days in an Egyptian prison, it reminds me of that movie uh, Midnight <laughs> Express. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, is it, how does it change your life? Oh, it was, well, it's given me a mission, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a sense of purpose. Um, I'm, you know, it, it's it it, it it will always. I I don't want it to define me. Yes, but it will always be a part of who I am now. Mm. I can't take that period away from me. Um, it changed me profoundly. I don't think it damaged me. Mm. Um, I don't think I, I don't. There are no signs of PTSD. I know that these mm. things can come to bite you on the ass at a later date, but I'm, you know, I don't feel damaged by the experience, um, and I've become determined to use that period in prison um, as a way of talking about press freedom issues. Yeah. You know, it's and, and it, you know every time I get a microphone in the stage, <laughs> it's a way because the Egyptians tried to shut us up. The whole point of what they were doing was to silence journalists. To silence us, and so every time I have a microphone and an audience, it's effectively a way of flipping the bird at the Egyptians and saying, "Screw you! you know, you've yeah, made yeah. it far worse for yourselves because you've, you've given me, you've given me a platform, you've given me a voice that I would never have had otherwise." Mm. It's, mm. Like, it's like Putin invading Ukraine. He's just made, you know, he, he's created his own worst nightmare. Yeah. Yes, Peter. I've just got a couple of questions. I know we're moving on from this, but I can't. I've never spoken to someone in this situation before, so I need to ask you a few things. You get let out. How quickly did they get you to the airport? <laughs> Straight to the airport. Okay. The, bizarrely, I was taken. That, that couldn't get me out of the country fast enough. So um, when they broke into your hotel room, yeah. all your personal items were there. Did um, you get them back? Um, I got my clothes back. Okay. Um, I didn't get my laptop back. I had, it still breaks my heart. I had... Um, I was in Cairo. One of the things I had in Cairo was was um, a backup hard drive um, because I knew I'd have a little bit of spare time in Cairo. I'd, I'd been on the road for a long time. I had a lot of archives, photographs, scripts, uh-huh. documents, all sorts of records of my life. And I thought, look, I really need to organize this stuff into some kind of coherent whole. I'm going to have a bit of downtime. Um, I might as well bring bring it to Cairo. I'm, all I'm going to be doing is flying in or taking a taxi to the airport. Oh, sorry, to the hotel. Yeah, I'll be locking it in the safe in the hotel. It'll be fine. Um, unfortunately, they got that. And uh, I still have it. Okay, and uh, you went into jail, Australian. 
you left a Latvian Australian. So mm-hmm. two passports? Two passports. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And now that um, you're a convicted terrorist in uh, Egypt and you know obviously you can't go back into the country because you wouldn't want to, has your desire to go and see the pyramids? <laughs> <laughs> you know, f- you know FOMO? Wondering. You know what? <laughs> Uh, you know what? I would be if, if if I possibly could, I'd be back in the flesh. If I okay. didn't think I was going to go back to prison, no, I, I have absolutely no antagonism, no grudge for for Egyptians. Yeah. You know, I I ex- there are a few assholes in the government in the judicial system um, who I, we got them in the NT. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I but I was also shown some extraordinary generosity. Mm. by other Egyptians, some of the most intelligent, capable, brilliant people I've ever met. Yeah. Um, I met in, in prison were fellow Egyptians. Yeah, I got nice. some extraordinary acts of kindness and generosity, including from some of the jailers who I came to, some of our guards, who honestly I came to, to regard, not all of them, as I said, there are a few assholes there, mm. but some of them I saw came to think of as much prisoners of the system as we were. Yes. Um, they were employees, yes, but they were trapped in that employment. They couldn't yep. leave the prison. They couldn't get jobs elsewhere. They were un- unskilled. They were, you know, they were so badly paid that they could, you know, it was literally hand to mouth. Yeah. They hadn't, didn't have any kind of skills or contacts to go anywhere else, and so they were trapped in that, in that prison, in a pretty ugly, brutal prison system. Yeah. They weren't all... They weren't all horrible people. There were some, you know, as I said, there were some decent guys that were there. Last question. Having been in that region for quite some time in multiple stands in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, in your opinion, where are the best dates coming from? (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about the edible ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I reckon the Saudi dates are pretty good. Yeah, okay. Um, Gotcha. Yeah, because I reckon you would have, when you sat down with the Taliban, I reckon there would have been quite a bit of uh, coffee and dates and shisha and some uh, oh, yeah. you know, breaking of bread and yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the shisha, yeah, the Taliban weren't so big on, on dates. There were a lot of really yeah, fantastic fruit um, and nuts in, in mm. Afghanistan, some of the best walnuts, pomegranates, man. The, mm. the, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. You, just, you just gave me a flashback to Raiders of the Lost Ark, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Bad dates. <laughs> uh, so, um, okay, well, look, that's well, that was extraordinary, Peter. Look, uh, you you talk, you're talking you're talking about journalism. You're talking about your, um, you know, I guess your your raison d'être after the uh, experience there. Um, what what can you say about the state of journalism in, in, in Australia now? Uh, um, not as bad as a lot of people believe it to be, but it could be in a hell of a lot better state. And there are a couple of big things. I think professionally there are a lot of really, really talented journalists here. Mm. Um, but inst- the institution of journalism, I think, is in trouble, I think, um, largely because we've got such a concentrated media landscape. We have really only got three three media networks that most people ever encounter, um, and that's News Corp, um, the Nine Network, whether that's the, the TV networks or the newspapers, 
and the ABC. Um, yeah, of course, there's seven and ten, I suppose, and a few other local newspapers and radio stations that people encountered. But by and large, it's those three big behemoths that dominate our media landscape, and I don't think that's healthy at all. Um, I think that causes a lot of problems. I think there's a lot of deep antagonism between those three big organizations, which doesn't help. Um, but equally, I think that it gives those those three organizations enormous amounts of, of, of power to influence politics. I, I don't think that's – I think journalists should be influential in, 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 way, in certain ways, but, I, but constant, that kind of concentration of, of, of power and the capacity of, of editors to influence politics I, I think is unhealthy. But also I think that we are in a really serious state, and I think this is the, by far and away the biggest concern in terms of the way that our legislation restricts legitimate journalism. Um, Australia are the world leaders in national security legislation. We, we're the gold, by far and away the gold medalists. Since 9-11, Australian parliaments have passed more than 90 separate pieces of national security legislation. 90-90. No other country comes close to that number, and so many of them are very loosely framed in ways that allow the government to silence legitimate journalism. Um, which ironically is kind of what, when you think about it, exactly what happened to us in Egypt. Now, mm. I'm not suggesting Australia is about to become Egypt mm. anytime soon, but the political winds, the political forces that made it possible to imprison us in Egypt on national security legislation in a way that shut down perfectly legitimate journalism are the same political forces that are driving Australian legislation. And even though up until 2019 when we saw the AFP raids on both the ABC and News Corp, um, we hadn't seen journalists being arrested or raided. And even now we don't, that, that's a very rare thing. A lot of the legislation basically effectively does what it's supposed to do and that's act as a deterrent. Um, so journalists, um, sources, whistleblowers and sources are vulnerable to to prosecution, journalist data is, is exposed to um, overbearing investigation, both covert and overt. Um, a lot of legitimate inquiry, legit, legitimate journalistic inquiry is now um, illegal under you know, foreign interference and espionage laws. Um, all of these pieces of legislation undermine the ability of journalists to hold our government to account. And I think that is an incredibly dangerous situation for us to be. So, but how did we end up here, Peter? Because because our governments have weaponized national security. Um, we're constantly told that <clears throat> the government needs these extraordinary powers to fight the war on terror. Never mind that the war on terror, as we once understood it back in the early days post 9-11, has long since gone. Um, but you're not seeing the governments roll back any of those powers because the war on terror is never going to be declared over. Um, a lot of the legislation has been rushed through parli parliaments with bipartisan support because um, the Labor Party knows it's vulnerable on national security, and so it's never really put up any serious opposition to a lot of these laws, even though they know and understand that it's pretty toxic and pretty dangerous. Um, Isn't that just lazy, um, Peter? I mean, when I well, say that, right, to me it's like I can't be bothered really sitting here and explaining this to the general population, so I'm just going to vote for it. Uh, yes, but I also think it's politically – I mean, the Labor – I think the thing is, if you think, put it this way, 
any, if, if you imagine yourself as a politician who stands up in parliament and vehemently opposes a piece of national, a piece of legislation that the AFP or ASIO declare is absolutely essential to them doing their jobs, and you as a politician say that this is this is overreach because it uh, undermines the civil liberties of ordinary Australians. Mm. Um, to, you know, a week later to, to have another Lint Cafe siege, for example. Yeah. That, pol- that, that would be political suicide. It is far more dangerous to argue against an extension of national security laws than it is to argue in favour of it. And I think it's been not so much politically lazy as politically weak. Um, and, I, and I think that's really why we're in the situation that we are at the moment. Well, it doesn't speak much to the leadership in this country, then does it? No, and I think we've also become more generally more xenophobic um, as a result. Um, we've, as a country, I think we've become far more intolerant of outsiders, um, far more suspicious, particularly of people with coloured skins. Um, and and people of you know different faiths, um, and I think that's that's been a real shame on Australia. I think that's been a huge loss to us. Um, I think that we've we've seen governments demonise and, and leverage um, national security, leverage populist ideas of of what of, of the other um, in ways that I think are frankly outrageous and shameful. Um, we've locked up migrants, refugees on, on Manus Island and Nauru for, for years and years and years at a time for doing for no other crime other than wanting to find a better life for themselves, but on the assumption that they must they they are dangerous to Australia's national security um, unless they prove otherwise. And I think that's cost us dearly. It's cost us culturally, but it's also you know, we've paid a very heavy price in terms of our own our own civil liberties, um, and I, I I I don't think we've fully understood it. Mm. So, I mean, how do you, how do you push back on this? I mean, if you can't rely on politicians to do it, how do you how do you do it? Well, well, I we've been arguing that in fact. So, I think it's a fairly simple argument that one of the reasons that our political system is has been so robust, one of the one of the reasons that our political system has made Australia one of the safest, most peaceful and prosperous places on earth is because we have had a long tradition of a vigorous, vibrant free press. It hasn't always been edifying, particularly edifying. It can get pretty ugly at times, but it has worked. So any national security legislation that undermines the ability of the press to do its job is legislation that undermines the integrity of our political system. And in that sense, it undermines national security because I think, as I said, that political system has been one of the reasons for the, for the success of our country. Um, I think too often press freedom and national security are seen as being in, in opposition to one another. I often talk of a balance between press freedom and national security. As if you have, if you can have more of one. But that means, by definition, you must have less of the other. Now, I don't think it's a zero-sum game like that. I think there is a necessary tension that exists between the two. But I think, but I don't agree that they are in 
in, in binary opposition. I think it is possible to protect press freedom um, and allow journalists to do their jobs, save for a fairly narrow slice of genuine of, um, of genuinely damaging or information that might genuinely damage national security. But for the most part, far too much stuff gets covered up under the cloak of national security that we really should be able to to interrogate and expose as journalists. And do you think uh, Trump's presidency and the sort of weaponizing of, of, of fake media uh, or fake news, do you think that that has caused us uh, collateral damage here? Oh God, Leon, if we go down that route, we're going to be here for another, another couple of hours, <laughs> another couple of weeks. You know, I That's the war on stupidity. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, of course, it's done, it's done huge damage. But in some ways, too, I think it also um, encouraged a lot of people to return to, to legacy news services and understand the value of it. I think the same's happened under COVID. You know? yes. What we've seen is a huge uh, movement towards legacy news services because people know that they need information that they can trust now that doesn't mean that we haven't got a couple of fringe elements that have weaponized fake news to create you know a huge and and really troubling cohort of anti-vaxxers but but i also think a a lot of people have really understood the need for good quality news well i I have for for one (laughs) um and uh and I would, I do want to talk to you about this before we finish up, Peter. And and that is the Anti Independent, uh, which is a independent news outlet here in the in the territory. Uh, started up by a, a fellow who's uh, got a bit of notoriety, um, and but but notwithstanding that, um, has managed to um, get himself an editor and a news writer who's just uh, you know just. He's like a dog with a bone. You know, he <laughs> does not let go. When he gets a story, he's in there and he's drilling down deep and deeper. And it's just incredibly refreshing uh, to be able to read stories um, that affect us here. Um, but surprisingly, and this is a, you know, we have a Labor government here in the Territory. And this government, which came into power in 2016, uh, on a platform of, amongst other things, uh, accountability, uh, has then proceeded to slowly wind all of this back. And, and yeah. in terms of the news, the anti-independent, the first thing that they did when they came on the scene was use the excuse of the fact that they didn't um, they didn't like the uh, the owner of the paper, uh, which is complete which is complete rubbish unless you can demonstrate. That that owner is somehow using the paper for his own political ends, and as far as I can tell, there is no evidence of that. Then, whatever you think of the owner can have no influence on on whether or not you you allow the journalists into news conferences, whether you take calls from their journalists or give them interviews. You know, it it, it, it has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the journalists. Now. If they, if if the government, if the Gunner government can show that somehow the owner of the Independent is interfering with the journalism, then they they've got to lay off. And and I, I I think you're right. I think it is incredibly damaging. It's damaging to the territory's democracy. It's it undermines um, the ability of not just the Independent's readers to follow what's going on, but um, the rest of the state, because you know, news organisations feed off one another. The stories tend to flow through the system, and, and, and you're right that the, the independent does some 
really dogged journalism. You know, they've really, really dug into some of these stories, as you say, like a dog with a bone. And again, if, if that's uncomfortable for the government, then actually the, the, the independent is doing its job. Yes. Journalists are supposed to be part of the awkward squad. They're mm. not supposed to be cheerleaders for the government. They're supposed to constantly challenge and question and hold their feet to the fire. That's its role. That's why it's effective, because, it, because good journalists won't take anything at face value. Mm. Um, and they will stick to, they will dig into stories. They will follow them wherever they lead. They will irritate and annoy governments. Um, but that ought to be seen as a good thing, not as a bad thing. Political bias, political vendettas, okay, that's, that I can see, you know, if you're using your paper for, for those sorts of ends, then, then that's a problem. And crikey, there are enough allegations labeled um, of that kind of interference leveled at, at News Corp papers. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see the Gunner government stopping the News Corp papers from, from <laughs> entering their news conferences. And I think, you know, I, I really think the way that they're treating this is is, is really problematic. Um, and clearly, you know, both sides of federal politics also agree. We saw um, a resolution yeah. passed bipartisan support in the Senate, um, I think it was last year. Sorry? Unanimous, no it, less. It was it was unanimous, by, unanimous bipartisan support calling on the territory government to allow to back off and allow the anti-independence journalists into their news conferences. Mm. Now, I, you know, it, 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 under those circumstances, it can only be a bad look for the government. If it wants to be taken seriously, if it wants to, if, it, if, if, that, if the Territory's administration wants to be respected as a legitimate government that respects free speech and freedom of the press, then I can see, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one thing that they can do, and that's, that's engage with the independent, allow their journalists into their news conferences. It's one of those funny situations, Peter. I've said this a few times to the editor, uh, who we talk to uh, once a week on this podcast to find out what's going on in the world in, in uh, the Northern Territory and politics and business, etc. In a funny kind of a way, it may have actually played into their hands as a benefit because something you said just then was exactly what I've always thought. It, it really looks poorly on the Northern Territory government when every single article finishes with, we sent them the questions and they failed to respond or they yeah. chose not to respond. Now, if you're someone who's sitting on the fence politically and not sure who you're going to vote for at the upcoming election, is a party who refuses to answer questions uh, to a news outlet going to be someone that you're likely to think, yeah, they're trustworthy, they're telling me everything that's going on, or, or perhaps the opposite. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It, 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 it is shameful. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not going, they're not winning friends with this. And I, I, you know, frankly, I think it's, it's not just embarrassing. I think it's, I think it's outrageous. And, and you know, I, I really urge the government to, to back off and, and um, engage and allow the independent to work with them. I have a, a technical question, Peter, to which I actually don't know the answer to this. But when a newspaper um, organisation approaches public servants uh, to comment on things, are, are they obliged to to engage or are they allowed to say, well, I'm not going to answer that question? 
No, there's nothing that forces them or obliges them to. And in fact, in recent years, it's become much, much harder to, to go to anyone other than the official uh, media officer in any government department, um, and usually in writing, which is I also something I also decry. Um, you know, in the old days, you used to be able to pick up the phone. You, you know, you'd go off to a government event, you'd have a whole load of contacts, a whole load of specialists who work in the departments, and you'd also have the, um, you know, the minister's press officer. But if you wanted information and want to understand how what was going on behind the scenes, and you'd pick up the phone and call the specialist in, in the department. Mm. Um, and you'd have, a, you'd have a natter to them. You'd, you'd, you'd get a deeper insight, deeper understanding of what was going on, and then you'd call the press officer for an official comment on, 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 on what was going on. Um, nowadays, it's all got to be on email, in writing, only to the press officer who then channels it to some faceless, unnamed um, <laughs> departmental official, and maybe, with, maybe you know, two or three days later, you might get an answer if you're lucky. Is this situation that, that we're experiencing in the Territory uh, something you've seen before in the Western world? Not well, not in the rest of Australia. Not to this, not to that extent. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, there are places like Hungary, I suppose, where they where yeah. Victor Orban has, yeah. has some pretty, pretty toxic relations with with um, the local. When, when your name's uh, Orban, you're going to ban everyone, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, but so that's re- it's a really good question, Pete. So in the rest of Australia, you have not seen. No, no, there's nothing. No, there's nothing it's, like it in the rest of Australia. So it's, it's just so typical of the territory, isn't it? <laughs> <We're always laughs> but to be fair, I mean, to be fair, the, the independence also, uh, you know, is, is, as you as you pointed out, is a particularly vigorous newspaper newspaper as well. Um, you know, and I, I've got a lot of respect for them. Yeah, I mean, um, I, and we don't see we don't see that in a lot of other. Oh, I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. I I sort of took it the other way, as in they're they're too too vigorous, and therefore they. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm saying. I mean, I'm not sure. Well, there's a whole lot of unique features of the territory. I think, as you guys probably know, that as to why this is happening. Uh, There's there's a lot of territory politics is is its own special beast, and and, uh, the independent is a part of that part of that environment. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, uh, we, we, you know, we. It bothers me, Peter, when I. When I read your story, uh, and you know, and I know what happened to you, I just felt, I felt, you know, what that is the that is the the extreme, and what we've got going on here is is obviously not as not as extreme because no one's going to jail, but it feels like the thin edge of the wedge. It feels yeah, like, and, and, hmm. and I don't think we can be complacent about this. I think generally Australians are too complacent because it, we're not seeing journalists in you know, getting their fingernails ripped out. We're not seeing um, newspapers with great big slabs of black uh, census ink across them. We're not seeing stories pulled off air. Um, but, but as I said, to assume, therefore, that everything is great is to miss the point that a lot of, a lot of the laws are working to what we call, have what we call a chilling effect on good public interest journalism. Um, Vastly narrowing the space that journalists are able to operate, and increasing the space that government is able to work in work in the dark, away from public scrutiny. And I don't think that's healthy. I think that is deeply troubling and, and very dangerous. 
Well, Peter, uh, we've taken up a lot more of your time than I think uh, we asked, <laughs> but um, but it was really such an interesting story to to have you you know to have you sort of chart your course and and take us all over the world uh, and share with us you know some things that are clearly very deeply personal and um, and yet you seem to be bouncing around like. Uh, you know, there's no tomorrow. So uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing everything with us. That's good to good good to be here. Good to talk to you now, Peter. It's also great to have another PG on the podcast with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Thanks for your time, Peter. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. That was Peter Grester on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.